Wednesday, January 30th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Pro, Brian Hinman, and from Motley Fool Asset Management, Tim Hansen. Happy Wednesday, guys. Hey, yes. we got a lot on our plate. We're going to talk Amazon. We're going to talk Boeing, Chesapeake Energy. But we're going to start with the big story of the day, the big event of the day. That is Research in Motion, which has finally mercifully unveiled the new BlackBerry 10. It is actually called the BlackBerry Z10. Uh, And I'm just going to quote Brian from CNN, the lead uh, sentence in their story. The BlackBerry Z10 is the kind of phone research in motion should have made years ago. Um, I know that, you know, obviously the phone is just out, um, so you haven't had a chance to, like, kick the tires on it. But uh, right before we walked in the studio... Uh, stock was down about 5%. And it had been up when the market opened, but uh, basically once the event started, stock dropped. That doesn't sound good, Chris. That doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> what uh, What are we to make of this? Well, you know, there's a lot going on at Research in Motion, and they're very quickly coming to, if they haven't already passed it, an inflection point where they really needed to uh, define what it was they were going to do well. Uh, and so this is very much a, you know... A, a call to action for them. This is they're sort of placing a lot of importance on this, uh, and it seems like the way that their business model is developing, they're really doubling down on hardware hardware sales right now. Um, so, if this phone does not pan out well, and there's going to be two versions. One version uh, is just a touchscreen, and they're they're going to come out with a keyboarded version, yes. also with a touchscreen. Uh, I think uh, a month later. So, you know, it's going to appeal to the, the BlackBerry diehards. But if this phone doesn't pan out well, uh, and they are making this announcement that, you know, they're, they're basically doubling down on hardware sales as opposed to service sales, which is the cash cow, current cash cow of the company, they could be in some, some, some serious trouble. Um, Tim, they are doubling down on the BlackBerry so much so that uh, as part of this event, they also announced that they are changing the name of the company from Research in Motion to BlackBerry. The ticker symbol is changing from RIM to BBRY. Um, that's how you create value, Chris. That's, I was just going to I mean, say. that's where, you know, if you're going to have a meeting, create some value, that's where you do it. That's how you do it. Fresh start. Fresh start. Totally We're fresh We're BlackBerry start. now. Yeah, exactly. You're skeptical. Uh, yeah, I mean, because, you know, at the end of the day, this is all about, about the ecosystem. And Apple has an ecosystem. Android has an ecosystem. BlackBerry doesn't. You know, and they're a few large corporate customers away from being in real distress. You know, and it used to be that if you were given a company-issued phone, you know, the, the company picked what model you got and they supported it. You know, and more and more companies now are letting people bring whatever phone they want to the table and, and they'll support it and give it access into the company infrastructure. And that, that's a result of a variety of things, improved technology, improved security and whatnot. But that core, you know, it's hard to argue that consumers ever wanted BlackBerry. You know, companies wanted BlackBerry for security purposes, right. and that's no longer the case. They don't have an ecosystem, and, and, and frankly, even if they can compete on features, you know, and, and the Samsung Galaxy phones and the HTC Fires and the iPhone and presumably this new BlackBerry can all compete on features, the fact is that a lot of high-end users will still want the iPhone because of the ecosystem opportunities that you get. You get to sync it with all your other devices, and I just don't see how BlackBerry can make meaningful um, inroads into that consumer market. Brian, global market share for BlackBerry two years ago was 20%. Today, it's 5%. What do they need out of this phone so that six months from now, they can stand in front of Wall Street analysts and say, see, this is working? (laughs) Well, they need to get all current 
or almost all current BlackBerry subscribers to buy into this phone. They can't afford to lose uh, lose anymore. They've got about 80 million. That's about 80 million people you're talking about. They need roughly 80 million, all well, of them, to say, well, yeah, I'm going to upgrade. It'll, 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 happen. it'll happen over a course of a few years, but they need to sell you know, you know, 20, 30, 40 million of these uh, per year. Um, because as, as Tim was saying, companies, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to argue that consumers like these phones or wanted these phones. It's been companies that have wanted them. So BlackBerry has you know, distinguished itself via security. But that, distinct, that, you know, that, that differentiation gap has really narrowed. And companies themselves now uh, are less willing to support the BlackBerry phone because users are, you know, are switching away from it. Uh, and so it's really not worth the investment in their tech time to be able to support it at such low levels. The stock has doubled from where it was three months ago. Yeah, uh, but what has it done from where it was 12 months ago? <laughs> so, I mean, to that point, is this the sort of thing where you you find this at all attractive today, even as sort of like, hey, I'm going to take a flyer on this stock? Or is this just, it's just are so been, many things working you know, against it? You know, it looked them? so cheap for so long based on trailing results. But at the end of the day, it's, it's just too hard because you don't know what the adoption curves. I mean, everybody knew a new device is going to have to come out, but you can't predict the adoption curve. And obviously, you know, Apple's profitability is going down. Researcher Motion's profitability is going to be is going to be punished. And 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 frankly, if, you know, growing a new business, which is essentially what this phone is going to try to do, because it's going to try to appeal to more consumers, which is something BlackBerry doesn't have a lot of experience marketing to or selling to. Um, you know, it's a new unknown business. At least Apple's business is something they can defend from. So I, I you know, they've got cash. They've got a product now. Um, th- those are t- both good things. Um, but they've got a Super Bowl ad. Apparently, a, they're going to well, roll out on Sunday. Probably have ten million dollars that just lit on fire. But <laughs> um, you know, I, I just—it's just too hard. I mean, somebody may make money on BlackBerry. It's, you know, it's not going to be me. Yeah, and it's and like I said earlier, their business model is changing. Uh, the dominant source of the cash comes from this services business, which is changing. So that dominant source of cash is not going to be the same a year from now as it has been in the past five years. So, yes, this phone is going to be a great upgrade for current BlackBerry users, but if they are saying we're going to make our money now from hardware, they need to get converts, and we have little reason to believe that they're going to be able to get converts. Shares of Amazon hit an all-time high, a new all-time high this morning in the wake of fourth quarter earnings. Uh, Tim, help me out here. They missed on earnings. They missed pretty significantly on earnings. They lowered guidance. Uh, I, I sort of feel like any other company who did that would get punished, and yet the stock uh, this morning is up, and it's at a new all-time high. Yeah, Amazon stock seems completely uncorrelated from its business, <laughs> which is you know, which is fascinating for a lot of reasons, and I, and I think it's just because the Amazon shareholder base is sort of, I think that's turning into one of these sort of feverish like you know we believe type shareholder bases, and so they. You know they missed on all these things, but they did. They improved on operating margin profitability, yep. which was still a really small number, and, and but it was better. Right, and their cost of shipping went down slightly. And, and everybody latched onto that as a as a reason to get really excited. You know, but I, I just don't. Amazon is just something I don't understand. Obviously, they're they're they are um, you know they're omnipresent in retail sales. It's a it's a fabulously successful website from to the extent that it's visited and and transacted in by many many people yep. um they get a, they have a great little business of float where these third party vendors sell through them and they get to keep the money for a period of time before dispersing it which is which is nice mm-hmm. you know but everybody believes that Amazon is going to become some ubiquitous awesome profitable company 
but profitability has been going down every year you know since you know the the the, the mid 2000s essentially roughly and i i don't know where it's going other than just being enormous and barely profitable how much of this do you think has to do with jeff bezos the uh the ceo because it seems like um he is Moving up the ranks, I think he was um, for for years now. I think he's been a respected CEO. It seems like uh, he's moving up the ranks in terms of investors and certainly Wall Street analysts' willingness to cut him a lot of slack. I think it has an enormous amount to do with Jeff Bezos. I mean, one of the things that uh, that I have sat back uh, and marvelled at that he's been able to do is manage expectations better than any uh, any other CEO that, that I know of. Um, he has basically uh, now for a decade plus said, I am gotten people to buy into the fact that he is going to view this company on a very, very, very long-term basis mm-hmm. and that near-term cash flows don't matter. We are building something bigger and greater. And for whatever reason, the investing community has said, okay, we're okay with that. We will not care that you know you don't make a lot of money or don't make any money uh, in any of these years as long as you give us a glimpse every once in a while that what you're going to do what you, that you're going to do what you, you say you're going to do and it's fascinating what Tim said about how uh, you know the, the the shareholder base being sort of believers more so than being business focused investors uh, to see that unwind right uh, we can just look at, at Apple, right? Apple had this believership that combined with a, a rapidly expanding business, you know, shot its share price up dramatically. But all of a sudden, like that believer base seems to have reversed course. And it doesn't matter that the company, you know, released its greatest quarter ever. Uh, it's just sort of deflated. Do you think that there is an external threat a meaningful external threat to Amazon's business, or is the greatest threat that they face simply their own ability to execute? No, the greatest threat they face is that people stop giving them free money. I mean, their cost of capital is essentially zero based on you know what a high-priced stock they have, and you know that's a huge weapon for them to use against competitors. You know, even Walmart even has to borrow like you know at three or four percent, mm-hmm. and that's why they have such power to undercut everyone on pricing, why they can be sort of agnostic about profitability, because it doesn't matter, because, you know, you need profits to fund growth to the extent that you can't get money from other people. But shareholders have been basically willing to throw money at Amazon. I don't know why, (laughs) because there's no, there's no, I mean, what, you know, you invest with a timeline to get your money back with a return. And I don't see what return Amazon is generating for shareholders, you know, and, and in a race to the bottom on pricing, you win market share, which Amazon has been hugely successful at. And, right. and from a consumer perspective, it's probably the greatest company in the world based on what they've done for pricing and convenience. You know, but having said that, when do shareholders get their money back? Because when you, when you become a low-cost provider, you know, raising prices is really hard. Yeah. And, and Walmart you know, you know, did really bad things to its U.S. business when it tried to raise prices, and they went back to everyday low pricing. And I don't know. I don't. I don't see. You know, when Amazon starts putting in place sales taxes, and you know, to the extent shareholders some at some point start demanding profitability and a return on investment, and and they can't raise money open endedly. You know, that's the threat to them because where do they get capital to fund this? You know, all this growth. 
Do they? Do you think eventually they, from a from a stock performance standpoint, eventually they get into the mode that almost like a Costco is right now, where Costco has the membership model and they have sort of this steady business that has paid dividends uh, for investors, but it's certainly not an exciting growth stock. Obviously, Costco a much older company, but when you look at the uh, Amazon Prime membership model, it seems like that could be that could be the way forward to maybe not spectacular profitability, but steady profitability. You know, that'll depend on a lot of factors. You know, I think they'd have to see a lot, like Costco succeeds because they have a very limited number of SKUs in their stores, right? Right. And Amazon will sell you anything. Right. <laughs> That's expensive to sell you anything. And they've, they've obviously managed that cost some way by, by, by you know, distributing it across third-party vendors so, that, so they don't need to stock all that inventory. You know, but they seem to be going in the opposite direction, which is we want more fulfillment warehouses. We want more, you know, physical kiosks. And those things seem you know, more expensive rather than less expensive. But yes, I mean, if they can jack up, if people become really loyal to Amazon, love the convenience, love the cost, and they can jack up the Amazon dot, you know, the Amazon Prime membership price to a point where it's very economical, that would be an avenue towards profitability. Yeah, I think I think that I think that part of it uh, is critical because in in retail there are no switching costs, right? People people I often hear people say the reviews on Amazon, you know, are great, and and they, you know, yes, that attracts customers, but there's nothing. That stops anyone from reading a review on Amazon and then going and making a purchase elsewhere. So, right. so the Prime model, the Costco model, uh, does raise switching costs in retail. And like Tim was saying, very interestingly, from uh, a shopping psychological psychological standpoint, uh, is lo- that they can raise the cost of that membership and not raise prices and probably have a different effect. It have the same net effect, right. but a different psychological effect on shoppers. Boeing's fourth quarter profit came in higher than expected. Um, but part of what's getting the headlines today is the fact that the New York Times is reporting that All Nippon Airways replaced 10 batteries uh, before the recent fires and reported the issues to Boeing. Uh, they were not reported to safety regulators because no flights had been canceled. Uh, Boeing says, hey, look, they, the batteries weren't replaced due to safety concerns, so this is not that big a deal. Um, I don't know. I mean, the stock is up slightly today in the wake of the earnings. This, this, seems, this seems like one of those drip, drip, drip stories where the headline risk uh, I get that the Dreamliner 787 doesn't mean a whole lot to the bottom line right now for Boeing, but it seems like the headline headline risk is getting methodically worse for them. Yeah, and they the company came out today and they said we still plan on delivering, you know, these 60 yeah. 60 this year uh, and and slightly accelerating from there. Uh, all of the airlines, uh, to my knowledge, have come out in support of the 787 and said, look, we, we think this is still a great product. We will figure this out. Um, but you're right. Like, this just keeps dripping and dripping and dripping. And it's not uh, – uh, I don't think we're, we're anywhere close to the point where uh, airline passengers will start getting concerned about this. I don't really think anyone knows. And so they're not going to not fly on a 787 uh, because of these fears. Um, but, you know, if there comes a point in time where – uh, the airlines fear that entering into this relationship is going to help, you know, hurt their bottom lines. Uh, they're they're going to bail, and this could be a bad thing for Boeing. Tim, if you're Airbus, aren't you just on the phone to 
every airline you have a relationship with and just trying to convince them to break their contract? Because the, you know, the Dreamliners, I mean, as Brian mentioned, going to deliver another 60 or so this year. They have back orders for an additional, I think, 750 or so. I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's an interesting question because so many of these airlines are betting on the fuel efficiency you know, that the Dreamliner gives you. And <clears throat> not if it's on the ground. Not if it's on the ground, but <laughs> and you know, on the, fire. There aren't a lot of alternatives, right? So I think they're willing to give Boeing the benefit of the doubt for the time being, because it doesn't seem like there's yet been that you know that that you know real high profile problem. Yeah, there's obviously been a lot of small problems, but it doesn't seem any. It, there's no nail in the coffin yet of the Dreamliner, and you know so much of this hinges on the science of the battery, which is sort of above my out of my purview right. to figure out how big lithium-ion cells should be and what should be separating them from one another to prevent runaway you know, energy. I don't even know the right terminology. I'm so far out of my league at that point. You know, and different experts have weighed in. Elon Musk, very high profile, said it's a flawed design. They have a very different design in their lithium-ion batteries at Tesla and SpaceX. You know, on the flip side, I've read, you know, there are plenty of scientists who, who, who've worked in this technology for a long time that basically say this is a known risk. And there are ways to mitigate it through both, you know, protection and and various, you know, monitoring monitoring of the way the battery is charged and recharged. You know, I, I don't know what the answer is. Um, I, you know, more interesting than Boeing at this point from an investing perspective, which I think Boeing has catastrophic downside with capped upside from the current price, right. which is not something investors should get that fired up about, is the, the Japanese company that actually makes the batteries, which is called GSUASA. And they, they trade in Japan, but they've been absolutely hammered on this. And they don't make any money on lithium-ion batteries for airline carriers. It's all, you know, industrial, more conventional batteries for industrial applications. And so, you know, they've been hit by the headline risk, and the stock has gotten quite cheap. And that, that's a more interesting investing angle here, although you'd have to look into, and I haven't at this point, you'd have to look at if there were a catastrophic problem, you know, who is liable, you know, who didn't right. check. You know, and Boeing, knowing that there were problems and not publicizing them, you know, lawyers probably that perked their ears up a little. Yeah, bit. Yeah, once again, if anyone's going to make money, it's the lawyers. Yeah, you because know, you know the one thing that doesn't matter in airline travel safety, right? <laughs> we can skip that's, on that's, that. That's you know, for, you know, number one, size of my seat. Yeah. Number two, quality of the meal. Do I get free Wi-Fi? Safety. Shares of Chesapeake Energy are up more than six percent this morning on very heavy trading volume, and it is not because of an earnings report. Uh, it is because of the news, and I was quite saddened to learn this. CEO Aubrey McClendon announced he is stepping down as of April 1st. I was. I was jet like For all the fun we've had in this room at the expense of Aubrey McClendon, I was like, oh, we're not going to have Aubrey to kick around anymore. Should we have a moment of radio silence? Um, you know, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. It seems like, uh, and this was part of the story I'm going to go home and hug my antique map collection. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, so many wonderful memories that Aubrey's given us. The antique map collection, the, uh, you know, the fact that he was getting personal loans while he was using Chesapeake. Uh, he was getting personal loans and using his collateral uh, wells that were owned by the company. I mean, um, but I, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I realize he has a financial interest in the stock going up. But from an ego standpoint, that's just got to be a kick in the groin to see the stock shoot up based on the fact that you're leaving town. The market has identified his value, yes. Do they have, I mean, is it all upside from here? I think it's a little punitive. I mean, look, he had his... Um Shall we say foibles? foibles. Uh, having said that, I mean he has run that company since 1989 and turned it into a major 
exploration and production company in the United States. I mean, he's you know revitalized to some extent Oklahoma City by himself, and you know brought a basketball franchise in there, put in all sorts of real estate development, a huge corporate campus, and some I, of this is obviously. I think T. Boone Pickens might have something to say well, about that, right? You know, <laughs> he's done, but he's done his part. I mean, he's created a lot. Of, he has created value over time, and I think he probably got a little too aggressive with how much he thought he deserved. Yeah. <laughs> and he, his ego some years back started getting in the way of good decision making. And I think it's probably prudent for him to, to take a leave from Chesapeake. I, I can never understand Chesapeake, partly because they obfuscate the facts about their business so much. So probably because it bought him time to, you know, take money out of the company. But, but, I don't know if Chesapeake is offers the same sort of growth opportunity without someone that aggressive at the top. Right. You know, and, and, and in an era of declining natural gas prices and rising costs of extraction, if you're not, you know, obviously they could bring in a cost manager there who could probably make cash flows go up, which is what I think the new board and, and the, the shareholder base want. Um, you know, to some extent, it becomes a less speculative stock, but but then you get you don't get the same opportunity at upside, but nor do you get the same chance that it goes to zero because Aubrey McClendon over leverages and <laughs> blows something up. Yeah, for sure, his ego uh, is reflected in the, the the strategy over the past few years uh, of Chesapeake. You know, historically they've been very aggressive uh, in acquiring assets and then just sort of figuring out the financing later. Uh, a big part of that figuring out the financing later. Um, was his ability to you know cut deals and and raise capital and and you know be a, a proponent of of the value of the stock to sell to, to new shares to shareholders? Um, so without him in the picture, uh, we might see a sort of calmer, gentler Chesapeake, uh, a Chesapeake with a different strategy altogether. Uh, so you know, but Chris, though, I think the bright side for you here. Is that with all this time on his hands, he becomes much more involved in the day-to-day management of the Oklahoma City Thunder. That's, that's just <laughs> which gonna, could get very exciting from a personnel standpoint. That could get very – yeah, I think it could be. Uh, some of our listeners weighed in uh, to the news on Twitter. Uh, D.B. Hudge – I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly uh, – wrote, To the king of Slegal – and for listeners who may not know, Slegal is the combination of slimy but legal. To the king of Slegal, please leave the good state of Oklahoma, take your maps and $200, and go to Rosneft. Um, which is uh, what, like a Russian oil outfit? Yeah, that's that, that just yeah, slightly <laughs> legal as well. Uh, and from Ed Rusk, uh, who wrote, "Amazing, best news ever. Who will win worst CEO of 2013 now that the defending champ is gone?" Do we have any nominees? I mean, I know it's early in the year, but I, I'm I was trying to think earlier today of another CEO who would have this effect, where the news that he or she is leaving the company immediately pops the stock. Uh, this happened at Yahoo recently, right? Before Marissa Mayer came in. Yep, it yeah, did. Probably um, dude from Herbalife would, would, if he left. The ongoing, yes, the ongoing drama at Herbalife. More yeah. than you would probably think, you know? I mean, let's see. Yeah, I mean, the, the Herbalife guy, he came out. Meg and Whitman, maybe, even? Oh, man. It's, 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 she left it's, HP. It's been People a short be but not very impressive run for Meg Whitman at Hewlett Packard. Short and unimpressive. Yeah. Brian Hinman, Tim Hansen. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. I think. If you're looking to read more from Tim and the other guys at Motley Fool Asset Management, you can go to foolfunds.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.